This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. What does 2024 have in store for tech regulation after a whirlwind year in 2023, in which courts generally turned away state-level attempts at regulation and big cases are now pending before the U.S. Supreme Court? Cato's David and Sarah and Jennifer Huddleston provide a rundown. Before we get too deep into the specific, individualized, discrete topics for future podcasts, it's worth sort of taking stock of the previous year and what we expect for 2024 with respect to tech regulation, most notably AI and uh, other other efforts to try to rein in or control the, the uh, outlay of new technology, uh, both at big firms and smaller upstart firms. So let's start with how courts handled tech regulation in 2023. Lena Kahn of the Federal Trade Commission has you know, been undertaking a fairly ambitious effort at attempting to control big tech, to make, it, make tech feel more like a utility in many ways. So David, if you don't mind starting us off, how did courts deal with a lot of the claims? And feel free to detail some of those claims from the federal government uh, uh, regarding so-called big tech. Yeah. So we saw several um, decisions in, in 2023, um, including things dealing with California's age-appropriate design code. And also we saw a decision against Mont- Montana's TikTok ban. Several of these types of decisions were we, we see as different states, different governments, you mentioned the FTC, different regulators are trying to, trying to limit um, the ability of tech companies to create products that uh, appeal to consumers. And they are often trying to minimize some sort of nebulous harm, whether that's some sort of FT, like in the FTC's case, trying to some, some sort of consumer welfare standard or whatever it's, whatever it's going for, or it's trying to say, well, you know, this whole platform, TikTok, is just inherently harmful and we need to prevent anyone in the state from using it. These uh, interventions have generally been stopped in the courts, thankfully. We've seen courts say, look, we need to make sure that users have uh, access to to products and and tools that they want. They have First Amendment rights in many cases that you can't just say we're going to require tech companies to create certain products or speak a certain way or limit consumers from consuming certain types of products. So thankfully, we've seen that. But this is certainly not over. And we've seen we were seeing a lot of new cases, especially coming up in 2024, where those same bounds are going to be tested even more. And certainly legislators aren't even close to being done. We see a lot more in the, in the state and federal governments currently happening right now that could be challenged. And Caleb, you started off by mentioning Lena Khan and the FTC. We've seen the FTC file several significant cases involving either mergers and acquisitions that involve tech companies or, or going after tech companies under other competition claims. What we've seen largely is that these often creative theories, theories that shift away from that objective standard focused on consumer welfare, have largely been rejected by the courts, that the courts have looked at things like when we've seen the FTC try and stop the Microsoft Activision acquisition and said, no, that's, that's not actually the market as consumers experience it. You, you can't just make the market what you want it to be in order to make a company 
look like it it has more of a monopoly. We've seen them reject in um, a case involving Meta's potential acquisition of a VR fitness company, the idea of a presumptive market, the idea that that the, a market that could perhaps one day exist, that you have to actually have the market already in existence in order to say that it's going to be a, a monopoly claim. And we've continued to see that this consumer welfare standard has been what the courts are using. And that's a good thing because it means that they're looking at this from an objective point of view, really looking at how these transactions would benefit consumers or potentially harm consumers in a very objective way, rather than going at a more subjective standard that would allow a lot more policy intervention, not only in the tech space, but into any number of areas of the American economy. I don't think many of us can forget late in the year, Elizabeth Warren basically called to break up Big Sandwich um, because of a, a potential acquisition. So for anyone who thinks that this is only about tech companies, if the government has this powerful tool and starts to use it in the way that we've seen the FTC try to use it and thankfully be stopped largely in the courts, that will extend into many more areas of the economy. I've got so many things to say about sandwiches and how people like me continue to make them without any prior authorization whatsoever. But with regard to tech, and you, you mentioned that this is, a, this is an area that encompasses more than just the specific technology companies when lawmakers write statutes quite often, and especially in this kind of case, they don't really know what they're talking about. And I don't mean that critically. I just mean that they don't know how to describe a lot of the technologies that they would like to regulate. And this is probably ex most especially pernicious at the state level, where, as you mentioned, California and Montana having uh, court cases and attempting to come out with these big regulatory structures or outright bans on certain technology. What else have we seen at the state level, either in legislatures or in, in the in, at the federal level, attempting to overbroad, uh, make overbroad the, the attempt to regulate? At a state level in 2023, we saw a lot of conversations around youth online safety. And while many of these proposals were often well-intentioned because of, as you mentioned, the nature of drafting policy, they were often overbroad and raised significant concerns for the speech rights, both of young users as well as of adult users, as well as for the privacy concerns that could come with these bills for all users, because the only way to prove someone is not under 16 or under 18 or whatever age these bills set oftentimes is to prove that they're over that age. So this would have a significant impact on adult users as well. That certainly is something that we saw in 2023. Many of these laws are currently under litigation. We saw a ruling against Arkansas's attempt to ban young people from social media on the First Amendment grounds. We've seen a ruling against California's age-appropriate design code, again, largely on First Amendment grounds. That ruling has since been appealed. And we're seeing a, a challenge to the, the Utah law that was a, a slightly different model on the same topic than the two that I just mentioned. And uh, we can't, we have to remember Nikki Haley and her suggestion that pretty much everybody 
needs to be verified online. She later walked back those comments and you know the, this is all offered on national security grounds. She later walked back those comments and said, "Well, I'm only talking about people in other countries." Of course that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't actually change the mechanics of what must be done in any substantial way. Exactly. The same challenge that Jen just just addressed before. You, well, then how do we know that you are a foreign person speaking on, you know, to a US platform or to a US audience? Well, we still have to verify everyone. So it's the same challenges arise in, in, in that case as well. There's also another set of state-based cases, which we're going to see continued action in, in 2024. And these are the cases that are currently known as the net choice cases. These cases are going to be argued before the Supreme Court uh, in the next couple of months. These deal with cases where, the state, where states have tried to say that Texas and Florida have said that you have to, social media companies have to allow certain types of speech. You can't moderate um, certain types of speech in certain ways. These are problematic for, for multiple reasons, but part of the, one of the biggest is just that you're forcing a social media company to express itself in a certain way. You're saying you, they can't create the rules for their own private property. They're saying you have to allow any sort of speech that fits into this category or that category. That sort of seizing of their expressive rights, forcing them, compelling them to host that kind of content is quite problematic, but it also has the same sort of logistical problems that we often see in tech, which is that, well, if you force, for instance, the one provision says that you can't ban perspectives because of a viewpoint. Well, what is a viewpoint? Is pro-anorexia content a viewpoint? Is pro-KKK content a viewpoint? Is Nazism a viewpoint? Like, you could go down the list of nearly any controversial issue or even non-controversial issue and find a viewpoint there. Are social media companies allowed to moderate at all? Because almost anything could be a viewpoint. And certainly we want companies to be able to do some moderation to allow consumers, users to be free from certain types of viewpoints that they don't want, or perhaps even given users more control over what they want to see in their news feeds. But these kind of laws could prohibit that and could harm the benefits of content moderation to users while also harming the expressive rights of companies. In general, we start to see a continuing trend that emerged a few years ago around the issue of data privacy, where in the absence of a federal policy on some of these tech issues, the states were acting on the idea that they could almost act quicker. The problem with this is that we've seen some states, notably California, create kind of their own version of what we see internationally called the Brussels effect, where heavy-handed European regulation becomes a, a de facto global law in some cases, happen on a state level too, where there's a bit of a Sacramento effect, where California will say pass a data privacy law because that is such a populous state, because of how many people it applies to, and because of the nature of that law, companies find it easier just to apply that across the entire U.S., and Sacramento becomes a de facto federal policy. Additionally, in other cases, what we continue to see are these fragmentations of the internet around really important issues that could really make it difficult, particularly on those smaller players. Not only are they faced with the choice of, do I now go into California or not? Because if I go into California, I may have to comply with something that doesn't really fit my model, but I'm going to have to check that box just to, to say I did. 
They're also faced with the fact that now, okay, you may have different, have 12 different laws that vary just slightly enough that in order to offer your product across the country, you're going to have to constantly be consulting your attorneys in order to make sure you're in compliance with each of those products. And that in some cases with things like the Montana TikTok ban, is this even a practical way of being able to do this at a at that localized of a level as opposed to a conversation where we're seeing that you know data flows across state borders very easily when we're having these conversations we are oftentimes involving multiple states you think about something like recording a podcast of whose state laws are going to apply to say the content contained in that podcast if we did see something that allowed states to act on this content moderation policy. So one of the strong things in Section 230 was that it was really designed to be a federal preemptive policy, that it really was designed to handle these issues at a federal level rather than risk the fragmentation of something like content moderation on a state level that could have significant negative impacts on speech, as well as on the ability of smaller innovators, particularly to interact across these state lines. And it seems like whatever you think of the Commerce Clause in the U.S. Constitution, if it means anything, it ought to mean that information, as well as goods and services and people, can cross state borders without state-level barriers erected. I think that's something that certainly needs to have more conversation in this context. You know, we we've seen I, I've discussed this in the data privacy context in past writing. If you can't force a truck to change its mud flaps at a state border, then how can we expect the internet to change its data policy every time it encounters a new state? Unfortunately, this is a reality that we're seeing emerge on a bunch of different topics. And that while we have seen courts ruling on these topics on First Amendment grounds, we haven't really seen that Commerce Clause context be fully developed in the, the question of how these state internet policies may, may apply. David and Sarah and Jennifer Huddleston are both fellows at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening. <laughs>